Join the party and spirits are playing in your city. God, we're so excited. Eric will be wearing his DMing glove the entire trip. I'm both worried and excited. Seven cities, 10 days at the end of March 2024. Your two favorite podcasts, Join the Party and Spirits, are performing live. We're playing games, rolling dice, making monsters, and a whole lot more. So come see us in Seattle at the Hereafter on March 21st. Minneapolis at Granada on March 22nd. Chicago at Reggie's on March 24th. Boston at the Rockwell on March 25th, New York City at Littlefield March 26th, Philly at City Winery March 27th, and D.C. at Atlas Brewworks on March 28th. Get your tickets right now at jointhepartypod.com slash live. That's jointhepartypod.com slash live. There you can see all the ticket links and find the city that works for you. When you're rolling the bones, your future is looking good. Join us. Hurry into Ram Power Days and experience the raw power of the Ram 3500 with available best-in-class torque and towing among 350-3500 pickups when properly equipped. Strap yourself in for one powerful ride in the Ram TRX with the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built. Or the Ram 1500, awarded number one in driver appeal among light-duty pickups by J.D. Power three years in a row. Hurry into Ram Power Days going on now. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week, we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 286 with Brooke Blanchard. Brooke, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. We're very, very excited to have you on and to talk about your book, which just came out, if you're listening to this, the day of its premiere, The Peacekeeper. So, Brooke, can you, to kind of entice our listeners, obviously, if they're listening to this, we want them to go pick up the book. Can you give us a little summary, maybe a little teaser so that they they get a little taste? Oh, absolutely. It's an alternate history novel, and it's set in the present day. It's technically set in 2020, but in a different 2020 than we experienced in our timeline. And it's set in a world where North America was never colonized. And it takes place in a Great Lakes region. So it's a, an Ojibwa nation that kind of surrounds the Great Lakes. And it takes place in two parts of it. One is in what we know as the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is where I'm originally from. We know it as Sault Ste. Marie. In the book, it's called by its original name, Bawitigong. And then the rest of it is set in what we know as Chicago, or Chicaqua, as we call it in the book. And it involves um, a detective in that small town whose mother was murdered 20 years prior to the events of the novel. And his father had confessed to it and received the harshest punishment available, which is imprisonment. Chibanashi, our hero, has been raising his younger sister ever since. On the 20th anniversary of her death, which is on the night of the Monoman harvest, her mother's best friend is also murdered. And it is it happens in such a way that it looks like there may be a connection to his mother's murder. And so he doesn't want to go to Chicago. He likes his small town. Chicago is where his father is. Chicago is where the woman who broke his heart now lives, but he goes there. And so we see sort of an indigenous major city in the year 2020 had things played out a bit differently. And so that is that is the peacekeeper. And the peacekeeper refers to his title, which is what police officers, detectives are called in that society. They're called peacekeepers. This sounds like such a cool book. I guess 
A great place I feel like to start is speculative fiction is always a really interesting topic for me. And I think it requires so much like both historical context and also a very like fictional literary mind. What kind of got you into the idea of speculative fiction in the first place? I think like a lot of people, especially when I was younger and as uh, and for me in particular around 2016, the desire to escape into another world is a very uh, strong one. And for building up a world that's never existed before from your imagination and one that I think maybe even fills a gap that you have in your own life or just is something you can hook onto and fantasize about, I think that's very powerful. And so for me, I just love immersing myself in a in a world that isn't real, um, whether it's a magical world or like the Peacekeeper is not a, a magical world, but it is a very different one. And um, that's just always very fun for me. I mean, when I wrote this book, I spent a good year, maybe a little longer, just thinking about what the world would look like. And that was a lot of fun. It was challenging. If you're looking for a thought experiment that will occupy you for a year, imagining a world without colonization is a really one I can recommend. So yeah, I think that's that's a lot of it. It's just the the immersion and the the what if and you know, thinking about all the possibilities. I, I think that's always really exciting. I mean, I gotta know in a thought experiment of what a never colonized North America looks like, where did you start? I started first with one building um, that the whole world grew from me thinking of, I was driving to work, there's, there were high rises around me because I was in downtown. And I thought, just kind of saw one that looked like it had a dream catcher in almost like a cathedral window, except it was like a, a dream catcher. And I thought, that's interesting. And I started with sort of in alternate history, we refer to it as the hinge point, the point at which our history and the alternate history diverge from each other. Well, the one I have is about 500 years ago. So I first started thinking how it would develop, went down a bunch of rabbit holes. Does that mean there's no colonization period? Does that mean that there's just not colonization in North America? And I thought about it in a lot of different ways. And I eventually just thought, you know, here's what I want it to look like. I want to see a, you know, a 21st century city with a majority indigenous population. What does that look like? And there are indigenous cities throughout the Americas, but many have been lost to history. You don't tend to hear about them in school. So I also sort of based it on what some of those known ones look like and just kind of went from there and thought what would be interesting to me and what would be interesting to learn about. So that's that's kind of where I started from is I initially started thinking, well, growing it organically. And then I thought, no, I'm going to start from the end point. What do I want it to look like and go from there? That's such an interesting place to start. And then also having to think about how the rest of the world interacts with it. And I love the idea of like, is just North America not colonized or is the whole world? There's no colonization. That's such a like, I can see why you spent a year on it. I can imagine spending a decade on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. And if I let my, I mean, I still think about it. And there are, you know, things I, I was writing, I've been, I'm in the middle of writing the second book in this universe, and it's set in Europe. And so thinking about what Europe looks like without having had, and I, I settled on there's no colonization anywhere. So what Europe looks like is very different. And the map looks very different from what we would know. So it's, it's fascinating to, to think about. So I know you are a big fan of maps. Can we talk about <laughs> your love of maps a little bit? Maps are so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, 
absolutely. I mean, does like this love of maps kind of play into creating speculative fiction? Like, do you picture the maps of the land in your mind as you're starting to kind of form what the world looks like? Oh, absolutely. I think if you're creating an a speculative world, I think a map is essential. And I almost get a little disappointed if I don't have one in a speculative fiction or fantasy book I'm reading because I want to know where things are. Totally. Even a real history book, I like to have a map so I can kind of orient myself. Peacekeeper does have a map. I hand drew a map that took almost as long as writing the book did to create. (laughs) And it's without borders, North and South America, I didn't think they would have actual borders. But it shows nations and peoples in their rightful place, in their own land, not having been removed. And it's written in their own languages. And that was very moving. But I was also struck by how challenging it was to find accurate, you know, sources of information. And I mean, it's not wasn't terribly challenging to find it. Most nations, you know, have information about it, but finding the primary source for it, you know, and then trying to figure out who to, which nations to show and which ones not to, because I can't show all 570 odd nations just in North America alone. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't fit. So yes, looking at the map was really essential in order to figure out, okay, what's their source of power? Mm -hmm. What's their energy resource? You know, obviously the weather. How do they heat their homes? How do they provide air conditioning? What crops are they living off of? How much interaction do they have with other nations? I decided there'd be a pretty vast travel network, both abroad and domestically. What's the transportation system like? You know, this nation is across the entire Great Lakes region. In our world, that encompasses a number of states and two different countries. So it's a large area. And so I settled on basically a bullet train would go from place to place. Um, So the geography is very important in determining that. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, settling on the European side, you know, figuring out where borders would be drawn is another thing I'm working on. Because in that book, people are going from, you know, physical, you know, actual border drawn country to actual border drawn country, but the borders are in very different places. So thinking about that, you know, N.K. Jemison, one of my favorite authors, she talks about this in mm-hmm. um, a masterclass she teaches about how to develop a speculative world, knowing the geography is essential because that will determine everything. It can determine the politics. It can determine where the societal fractures are. And I thought that her statement on that was really, really accurate and kind of spoke to why I think maps are very important. And they're important for understanding our world, too. Seeing where people are, where our borders. I studied geography in college. You know, it's so much more than where capitals and borders and natural resources. It's, well, if you have a natural resource, what do you do with it? Do you export it? Do you keep it? It can, you know, impact your wealth. It can impact if you go to war with someone, it's, it's, I think it's fascinating. I absolutely love that. One, we don't talk a lot about how geography and history are so intrinsically linked. And that's why maps are so important. Did you have like a moment where you're like, ah, yes, maps, this is my jam now? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And that was one the, one of the first things I asked when speaking with my publisher is, can we have a map? Because um, I've drawn one yes. and I want to show it to everybody like a little kid. <laughs> Let everyone look at the awesome map that I drew. But I do think it's important, you know, especially in an alternate world, first off, to show the diversity of Native societies in the Americas. There's, you know, among some people, there's a, a thought that this is a monolithic culture. Just say Native Americans and you're done. And it's very, very diverse. It's very rich. And so I wanted to show just visually, this is a world that's very different. Another thing about the map we put in the book is it is 
going to look sideways compared to what we typically think of. It's orientated toward the east as opposed to toward the north, because that's the Ojibwa. The east is the focal point. It's not the north. And if you dig into this a little bit, Eastern-oriented maps were the standard until around the 13th, 14th century across a number of societies. So fun, nerdy thing I discovered in doing in doing that. I didn't know that. Neither did I. But it makes sense. I mean, I would orient my map toward where the sun comes from. That makes total sense to me. Exactly. That's exactly the reason behind it. I think maps are fun. I can look at them all day. Maps can visually show so much history and what's important to a society and can share a lot of information very quickly if you're, you know, if you just spend some time with them. So maybe I need better hobbies, but I think maps are fun. No, I think maps a good hobby. No, <laughs> this is perhaps the most obvious insight I've ever shared on a podcast, but maps are world building, right? Like maps yes. are literally doing the project of constructing how we see, view, divide the world. Like they are statecraft, they are political project, they are cultural messaging. Like maps are, are truly where it all begins. Correct. And I think what you leave out of a map is almost as important as what you put in it. So like I said, we don't have any borders in this world. And I thought that was very important because this is about people. This is about nations. This is not about drawing a circle around a piece of land and saying this is ours. That's not the perspective I wanted to show. So it's more focused on who lives there as opposed to what patches of land they claim ownership over, because that's just not not the perspective that I wanted to come from, from with this. But then in the second book I'm writing, we got very disputed borders everywhere. <laughs> Obviously, I would love to talk about maps for the rest of the episode because this is such fascinating conversation. I feel like I don't get to geek out about maps as much as I, I should. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, welcome to The Refill. Amanda, thank you. What what have we got today? What snacks are we are we snacking on? What what are we doing? Well, I have made a sort of like house pickled jardinera. I like to call oh. things that I make at home house made like house made bread, house made yeah. pickles, just because I made it in my house. And I think it's really fancy. That's true. So today we have some pickled uh, cauliflower, radish, carrot and cucumber. I love it. Amanda, I'm like really excited because one day I'm going to have like a real like big garden in my backyard and then I can make pickles for the winter. And now you're just making me even more excited for that. Yes, yes, yes. Got to get green beans in there. Mm, so much to do. But first, Julia, we have to just like how you fertilize, you know, your garden every day. We are metaphorically and like financially supported and enriched by the people who choose to use their human dollars to support an independent podcast that they value on Patreon. So thank you to the many, many hundreds of you who do so, specifically those whose rewards include getting mentioned in every episode. Alicia, Anne, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, Jessica Kinzer, Jessica Stewart, Measle Kins, Lily, Little Vomit Spiders Running Around, Megan Moon, Phil Fresh, Captain Jonathan, Malika, Cosmos, Sarah, Scott, and Zazie. And those legend level patrons, Ariana, Audra, Bex, Clara, Iron Havoc, Morgan, Mother of Vikings, Sarah, and BME Up Scotty. You know that feeling, Amanda, when you find a new leaf on your beautiful, beautiful plants that you have in your home? <sighs> Just my favorite feeling. That's how I feel when I hear those patron names. Mm, so good. So good. Now, Amanda, what have you been watching, listening to, reading lately? What's What's been keeping your interest? 
Julian, normally my recommendations include things that bring me joy, that help me escape, that sort of distract me from the world. But that's not always what I need. And something that I have found a lot of meaning in over the last couple of years and learned a lot from is the anti-racism daily newsletter at the-ard.com. And I recommend this on the show several times before. I recommend it all the time to anybody who will listen. Um, I support them on Patreon and they are an incredibly important and instructive resource. And if, like me, you are feeling helpless and uh, overwhelmed and like, you know, there is nothing you can do to prevent tragedy or to make things in the world better, I ensure you, I insist that you can. And every single issue of the Anti-Racism Daily Newsletter includes concrete steps, whether it's signing a petition, making a donation, learning something, having a conversation with somebody in your life, and they are providing an incredible free resource. So go ahead, sign up, learn, and support them financially if you can. Absolutely. And I I second that. It's a really great idea. It's a great newsletter. And I feel like uh, anyone would benefit from signing up for it. Totally. Now, if you're listening to Spirits, you love our witty banter. You love our discussions of things that are creepy and cool. But I think that there are a lot of great other shows on Multitude, including one that is our weekly friendly debate show featuring all of the multitude hosts called head heart gut that is exclusive to our multi-crew members the multi-crew is a program that we've had for several years now that helps sustain multitude as a company if you think that it's a cool thing that people who own their own IP and make their own shows and do their own thing can be supported and lifted up by their colleagues in content creation, then hey, help us with our mission. Help us do new things. Help us keep the lights on and the ship running by joining the multi-crew. That is what you are supporting. You're saying, hey, I think that an independent podcast business deserves to exist and to thrive in 2022 and not just stuff owned by Spotify. So you can do that and get the benefit of listening to our weekly friendly debate show at multicrew.club, where as little as $5 a month gets you access to head, heart, gut, and all kinds of other exclusive goodies. And trust me, you want to listen to head, heart, gut. We decide stuff like best fruit, best movie sequel, best thing to do at a theme park. No, it's not just sitting on a bench, Amanda, and much, much <sighs> more. So check it out. You can go to multicrew.club and get access to shows like head, heart, gut, and a bunch of other fun stuff. And finally, Julia, it is time to thank our sponsors. Julia, we are sponsored this week by Calm, where living in the city, sometimes there is a recycling truck that is painstakingly sorting through every single piece of glass and metal that your neighbors have put on your densely populated Brooklyn block. Or maybe the restaurant you live next to has decided that it's a great time to start power washing their entire basement, sidewalk, and alleyway at 1130 at night. And very easy time falling asleep to podcasts. I feel like like it's work, like I'm listening and like thinking and having thoughts about what's going on. So instead, I love to fall asleep to either a calm sleep story, and you know those train ones are my favorite, mm. or even one of their many soundscapes and relaxing sounds just to help me give some kind of white noise that is specifically designed not to like get too loud and surprise me into being awake and just to calm me down. I also really like their daily movement sessions, which are like designed to help relax your body, uplift your mind. It's just like, I need more 
opportunities to move and calm helps me with that. Totally. So how can people get on that calm train? Literally. Well, for listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash spirits. Go to calm.com slash spirits for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash spirits. Julia, you were kind enough to host me at your home recently. And in taking just a lovely and restful night's sleep, I thought to myself, "Mm, I'm so glad my standards are high. And I'm so glad I'm staying with Julia because she too has that buttery soft, that Brooke Linen baby. That's true. That's true. I treat my guests to the buttery soft, the exclusive, the Brooke Linen. This is, of course, home of the Internet's favorite sheets created in 2014 to give people luxury hotel level home essentials that don't break the bank. If you, like me, are interested in sort of flopping your duvet over on top of your bed and making it look really elegant, hey, linen sheets are a great way to do that. And Brooklinen makes those now. It makes you feel like you're Martha Stewart or Ina Garten or someone else with like an airy Hamptons home wearing like an oversized tunic and just being comfortable all the time. You can do that with Brooklinen. You can also be super comfortable all the time with their loungewear collection, which has like T-shirts and tanks and sweatshirts and joggers and all of your essential basics. And it's like wearing your sheets out of bed. It's so so comfy. So you can go to brooklinen.com and use the promo code spirits to get $20 off your purchase of $100 or more. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and enter the promo code spirits for $20 off your purchase today. Brooklinen, they're the curators of comfort. And finally, Julia, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you are burned out or overwhelmed at work, in life, in your relationships, in your friendships, and just kind of keeping up with the demands of the world, you might find it really helpful to talk with someone who can help you figure out what is causing stress in your life and how you can take opportunities to prioritize yourself. It's not always possible to get more sleep, get more rest, like not have screens. Like we've all kind of heard of these things, but having someone else to affirm that something is difficult and to help you kind of sort through what could actually make a change or even how to reframe those thoughts and do things that take five seconds or replace something you're doing with something else can be so, so helpful. And I get my therapy through BetterHelp. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anybody on camera if you don't want to. It is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. I promise you folks, this is not possible in the outside world. <laughs> spirits listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com spirits. That's betterhelp.com spirits. And now let's get back to the show. I would love to kind of talk about your background growing up, kind of the uh, the stories that you heard and like learned about when you were younger. Would you mind sharing a little bit of that with us? I'm happy to share it. I wasn't really raised within Native culture. I'm originally from the Upper Peninsula, from Sault Ste. Marie, which is where part of this book is set. But we moved to California when I was, I think I was about six. And I haven't lived there since. I'm a very much a Californian in a lot of ways. I can't (laughs) handle any cold weather. It's about 55 degrees here in San Diego. That's nothing short of apocalyptic. (laughs) I didn't meet my father's side of the family, my Ojibwe side, until I was almost 20. So I, I just grew up very disconnected from it. And I wish I hadn't. It's a shame that it worked out that way. I've connected with them since, and we now have a very close relationship. Yeah, I grew up, you know, learning about a lot of the folktales that kids in America grew up listening to, all the Disney ones, the grim fairy tales, 
all of Mm -hmm. those. And I was always a very, very voracious reader. So I started reading adult books when I was about nine or 10. And boy, did I learn some things (laughs) having done that. Definitely was part of the Oregon Trail generation who never had any supervised reading time. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I was always drawn to the stories where there's a lot of depth in the world and where you know that what's in the world, what you're seeing on the page is you know, only a a sliver of what's actually going on. And you feel that there's more of a history and you feel that there's more of a a world than you're actually seeing. And that's always really, really appealed to me. And I always try to think which ones have are the books that I think or movies that I think about long after I finished consuming them. And it's ones where I get to think about the world beyond what I saw on the page. What's happening to the characters? Where are they going? Imagining, you know, new parts of the world that you didn't see. And so that's that's always been very, very interesting to me. And that's what I love is a book where you see it on the page or you see it on the screen, but you can imagine so much more because you've been given enough to kind of take it and run with it and think about your own, or you can think about more than what what you've seen. To put it in map terms, it's beyond the board. It's beyond the edges of the map, right? Like what, what goes on there? <laughs> exactly. I... feel the, hey, I was reading stuff that probably wasn't appropriate for my age. Uh, (laughs) I like historically have said on the podcast many times that like I read Edith Hamilton a little bit too early. (laughs) And I remember a distinct conversation with my mother being like, what's a virgin? And her being like, I don't know how to tell you this. We haven't had that talk yet. Well, and I think a lot of us to turn to fantasy in those times. I know for me, before young adult was really a genre or certainly middle grade or anything like that, in bookstores in the mid-90s looking for those kinds of things, it was like Tamara Pierce. It was Diane Duane. Like it was all of the kind of fantasy books where my parents are like, seems fine. Probably dragons. I doubt there's sex in that. Well, usually not right. But uh, <laughs> they're, they're at least like fantasy kind of existed, at least for me. And that's why I found myself kind of drawn to those kinds of books when I was young. No, I think that's a good point. And I was I think more on the science fiction side than on the fantasy side. I remember, I think I read Jurassic Park 10 times before I finished elementary school. Wow. And a lot of it went over my head. Like I have to emphasize a lot of the science went over my head, but I don't know. There's just something so engaging about it and so interesting about it. And it's still one of my favorite movies, still one of my favorite books, you know, because dinosaurs probably is all the explanation we need for it. But just (laughs) sort of seeing, you know, I, I loved learning. And again, a lot of it went over my head, but sort of how you came up with the idea to genetically engineer dinosaurs and how they're created and where they're created. That There's a lot of detail in the books about that, that they don't really go into in the movies. And absolutely love it. The prologue of that book is just explaining what corporate espionage is. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just picturing, you know, grade school you being like, yes, yes, but where are the dinosaurs? I knew they were coming. (laughs) I knew they'd be there eventually. But yes, I mean, that there's a whole lot of stuff that, you know, as a little kid, you're exposed to sort of the dark side of the adult world. And as far as you know, violence and sex. There's not, I mean, save for the dinosaurs coming after people, there's not a ton of it in the book. So it's almost like a really good one for a kid to start because a lot of what I think parents might find objectionable isn't really in there. But there are other things that, you know, it does open your eyes to. And I think it's, you know, my attitude, I have two kids is if you can read it, you can read it. I'm not, you know, not police anything. And I hope 
you know, a lot of kids are still reading things they shouldn't. I don't know that I would be thrilled with them reading some of the Jackie Collins books I read when I was around 11. But again, if they can read it, they can read it. And I'm here to answer questions. I also feel like there's probably a little bit something to the idea that a lot of people consider fantasy and science fiction as soft and therefore like not adult. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I could not disagree with that more. We need stories as adults as much, if not more than kids do. I don't think it's soft at all. There's no greater way to shine a light on the truths of our world than to create a different world and either show it explicitly or by, you know, say you have a portal fantasy or someone's going from our world to another one and can directly compare the two. Or even one where, you know, you just kind of show the difference more subtly. You know, in my book, no one at any point says, boy, wouldn't it have sucked if people from Europe had come over and colonized and committed genocide? <laughs> boy, aren't we lucky that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why would they think that that was an option for any human beings to do another? I think so. So in its world where colonization didn't happen. But instead, you do see through the way the world is built. You see what you see the similarities, but you also see the differences. You know, it's been interesting for me to see what some early readers of the book have said about it. I remember one of the things that they drew as interesting. So one person who was read one of the very, very first people to read, first people to read an early draft set, you know, I, in one of your early pages, you show a character using their cell phone. And I just love showing that in your world, the Chippewa have cell phones. And I just wanted to say, I'm a Chippewa with a cell phone. That's not yeah. news, but there, I think what it does, you know, if any part of you know, showing indigenous people in a technologically advanced society sounds odd. That's how most of us live. We live in the year 2022 like anyone else does. And most of us live in cities. I, I think, you know, the, the majority of us by, by a lot. I don't even think it's close. I, I know in, in my tribe, it's about 70, 30. 70% of our tribe lives outside the tribal area. And I don't think we're an outlier. So that's, I think, what's really important you know, a really good way for speculative fiction to show us some truths. If you're seeing in a book that indigenous people are using technology and that's news to you, you know, maybe that's a good opportunity to learn about how indigenous people live in our real world. But I also think it shows possibilities, you know, how things could have gone very differently had history turned out a bit differently. You know, climate change is not a concern in this book. The book doesn't really get into it, but in my world building, I decided a few nations were heavily reliant on fossil fuels, but the majority were not. So that's where I think it, it can it can be interesting is to just sort of show the difference and, you know, hope that people make make the connection. And I think most, you know, most readers do. Showing people the difference between our world and the world of a book or, you know, any other medium where it's a fantasy world or a speculative world. Anytime you you show subtle differences and you can, and if people are thinking about it and experiencing it, that's, I think, only a positive thing because we all, I think, especially now need an escape from the real world. And it can, I think, give you possibilities and ideas of how the world could be different. What is that experience like for you emotionally in writing and building out this world? I would assume that there is a mix of, you know, kind of it's thrilling, you know, it's optimistic, it's escapist, but there must be a moment too, or perhaps many moments of, you know, grief, regret, like anger at the fact that these worlds are in your imagination and not not in your live reality. I keep fantasizing that I'll have an opportunity to jump into this world. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure we've all felt that in any book we love. I've certainly felt it about books that 
I didn't write. I, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one who figured out which Hogwarts house I'd be in and stuff like that. I always look at the back of the wardrobe. I know it'll never have a portal, but like maybe Mr. Tumnus is there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So in terms of anger or grief, we spend a lot of time in the criminal justice system in this book. And my background is as a lawyer. I don't do criminal law, but that's my background. And one way this story is very personal is my own father has been in prison for parts of my life. So I, I have some firsthand experience that our hero does, which is, you know, a, a parent who's been incarcerated. And I reached out to some of the elders and board members of my tribe to find out what did the pre-Columbian justice system look in our tribe. And no one really had any insight for me. So I, I modeled it after Navajo peacekeeper courts, which to be clear is a very diff- is a different culture, different nation. But in the absence of anyone saying, here's what we did, I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to create. And it's very much based, it's a mediation system. It's not a, a punishment system. It's take, so you're, it's a system where everyone sits in a circle. So it's not like you have a judge presiding over two sides who are facing the judge, not each other. And it's in a circle. And the goal is how was someone hurt? And what would it take to help make them whole? There's what is not factored into this at all is how do we punish this person for what they've done? That I think has been a huge missed opportunity in a lot of justice systems around the world. You know, before I went to law school, I worked as an auditor for the state of California. I I know you're very jealous and because that sounds very exciting. <laughs> I am a spreadsheet lady. So I, you know, a part of you speaks okay. to a part of me. <laughs> I definitely did my fair share of spreadsheets, but I also worked on audits of prisons in the in California. And so I spent, I've actually visited quite a few of the prisons in California as part of my audit work. And in law school, I worked for, or interned for, I should say, a, a nonprofit that helps prisoners exercise their civil rights. So I've been to quite a few in Massachusetts where I went to law school. I even now do quite a bit of pro bono work for the Innocence Project. So I'm, I'm you know, this is a world I'm very familiar with. And just what breaks my heart is that so many people you actually meet in the prisons, they're very nice. They are humans. They want to call their family. You know, so many have been so wronged by society or their families or the police. And I think seeing the human side of that is very difficult. And I think it's always been easy for me to do just because one of my parents has been in that system in and out for a lot of my life. So I think the anger I've really felt in writing the book is this is the justice system I want to create where it emphasizes making people whole. It doesn't punish people, lock them away, create a system where it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to find a job. You know, you kind of get that that scarlet letter on you for a lot of your life. And that I think is such, uh, that's, you know, if there was only one thing I could change about society, that's pretty, pretty high on the list. And it was one of the first things I wrote into this world is a much better justice system. And again, it's emphasizing on, you know, encouraging people to take responsibility rather than assigning it and, you know, figuring out what would make someone whole. And we don't factor in the punishment. In fact, we fairly early on in the book, we see an, a mediation completely unrelated to our characters. And it's the sort of thing that would probably land someone in jail in our world. Mm-hmm. And instead, you know, they arrange what would make someone, what would make the most sense. And that's it. That's the end of it. And someone wants, you know, is pushing for even more and they're reprimanded by the mediator, which is the role of judge, who says, that's not, we're not here to punish people. Don't, don't try to do that. That's against everything that the system stands for. And it was, it was important for me to, to emphasize that. 
Totally. And to your point, I think that, you know, will leave a lot of readers thinking, why is it this way? How how can I look for opportunities in my own life to ask for reconciliation instead of punishment or to assume that a infraction against another is from a place of need or being slighted in some other way and not necessarily of, of bad intent? And I think that it, it is, you know, as you said, so often through stories and through fiction that we come to recognize kind of the scaffold of, mm-hmm. of state building in our own lives and kind of ask what what was the intent and the project and the aims behind the things that we are raised to think of as normal. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so much of what's in the book, I had to really pause and think, wait, where is this coming from? For example, how time is handled. You know, I thought, wait a minute, hours, seconds, those are constructs. Would that be used in this society? In terms of how we, you know, a day is a day, a year is a year. Those are set by, you know, the rotation of the earth and, and mm-hmm. you know, revolutions around the sun. I can't do a whole lot about that. But how do we break down weeks or months? You know, so I dove into what have other societies done? I learned that in France, right after the French Revolution, they tried to institute a 10-day week because they were trying to base everything on, as well as a breakdown hour, the day they were trying to base it on the metric system at didn't last, obviously, <laughs> but to see how, you know, where things come from and how would you break it down differently? Now, <laughs> I'm not advanced enough to create my own timekeeping system, <laughs> but I was trying to be very conscious of not putting in things that I didn't think would be there, but for colonization. Similarly, first few lines of the book are the date written in, I think it's six or seven different calendar systems. This is a world where I think you'd have sort of regional dominant ones and then local ones, but I didn't think that you'd have the same Gregorian Christian calendar used worldwide the way it is today. That that seems fair. <laughs> <laughs> no archaic daylight savings that make kids go to school in the dark? No? There's no daylight savings in this book. No daylight savings. <sighs> at, at time of recording, we're like a week away from it not being daylight savings anymore. And thank God, let's just say. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier before you, you talked about how when you were around 20, you kind of reconnected with your Ojibwe side of the family. Uh, can you kind of tell us a little bit about that experience? Like, I, if that's not like too personal, because I know that's probably like a very uh, personal, maybe emotional uh, experience for you. No, not at all. When I was really young, my dad became estranged from his family, from really from everyone except his mother. And we grew up seeing her. She would come out to California and visit us. And that's always when you heard the real stories uh, in every every <laughs> sense. And she was a really cool, really cool lady. She lived to 95. When I say lived, I mean lived. She went to every party, every graduation, every wedding. Wow. And I'm convinced the secret to her longevity was she just didn't want to miss a thing. And she passed away about five years ago. But when I was about uh, 19, she had a heart attack and very nearly died. My thought was, oh my gosh, if we lose... And and, you know, you never think anything's going to happen to your grandparents, right? Because they've been in your lives for so long. But Mm -hmm. I thought, oh my gosh, if she had died, I would never... Like, that's it. I lose that connection to my family forever. And so I decided I wanted to go to, we call it the UP, the Upper Peninsula, where they everyone on that side of the family still lives. And I want to meet them. And my family, my dad especially, was they were completely supportive of it. And I was nervous about it. Just I didn't 
think I knew that it would go well, but you know, it's still nervous to go do it. And getting to, they live in a very remote part of the UP. It's called Gould City. You know, if you're going, you can fly into an airport in the UP, but even if you fly up there, it's still a good, you know, two, three hours from any airport, even a small one. I flew into Chicago and drove up along Lake Michigan all the way up there. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous drive. And the topography, the trees in the UP, just they're very distinct from anywhere else I've I've ever been. There's a great mixture of birch trees and different types of pine trees and it's kind of hard to explain but it just it's very it's like yes you're in the upper peninsula now the the way it looks and and I, it really felt like it was kind of calling me home and I got there and I I hadn't been there since I was probably 5 or 6 and I you know I had I was I think just a week or so away from turning 20 when I went up there and it felt like I'd never left. And that's kind of the attitude everyone had is, oh, good, you're back. Sit down. Let's catch you up. <laughs> and one person in particular, my uncle Jim, he was a Chippewa elder and he was also a nature photographer. He had a gallery. He's taken some of the most beautiful pictures. He has one that's famous in the UP called the Thunderbird, where it's a lightning strike, but it's very clearly a bird outlined. And the Thunderbird is a very important part of Ojibwa culture. And he just, he had some off-road vehicles and he said, let's go explore together and just took me everywhere and told me family stories and showed me everything. And it was just, it was such a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I'm so glad I did it. My sister reconnected with them a couple of years later. So my aunt and my grandmother had houses right next door to each other for pretty much their whole lives. Since my aunt moved out, she got married, moved next door. There was one house behind them on the same little block. My dad bought that one while still not speaking to his siblings. <laughs> so they all live in very close quarters to each other, close enough that you can open one window and, you know, have a conversation with someone. So now he lives up there and has for, I guess, about 15 years now. So all the Blanchards are back in the UP where where we belong. Awesome. Oh, I love that for you guys. That's that's fantastic. My advice to people who are nervous about reconnecting with family who want to, it's I thought that risk was was worth it. It was worth taking the leap. And it's been a very rewarding relationship. I had one more question kind of regarding the book. It's both a book question and also a Ojibwa question. You mentioned in kind of the the Summary of the book, and also when you were talking about it earlier, Monoman, mm -hmm. the Monoman harvest. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I think it's a wild rice. Am I right in that? Yes, it is wild rice. And it's okay. the only rice that grows naturally in North America. Mm -hmm. If you read any Ojibwe history, the history is that they were, you know, they started on the East Coast and moved west until they found the grain growing on the water, which is Monoman, and stopped and lived there ever since. Harvest time, it was and still is an event. You harvest it by taking some canoes out into the water and using a couple of long sticks to take the husk, the grains off of the stems and then come back and you separate them by what's called dancing the rice. And I have, you know, some video of my dad doing it. So that's what I, I based it on. It was a much smaller gathering than appears in the book. And the book, you know, the whole town does it. Um, and it's a huge, huge holiday for the entire nation. But in this one, he's with a group of about, you know, 10, 12 people. And you lay some, here they're using tarps, uh, or, in, you know, in, real, in our world, we use tarps. And on some very soft moccasins, you dig a little hole, you put the tarp on top, you put the monomen in, a couple long logs to hold your balance, and then you kind of dance on it. You 
stand and you kind of shift your ankles and you do that to kind of separate the husk from the grain. And then it goes into a barrel with some heat to further separate it. And then, you know, you, you sift it around and you've got you've got the rice. You know, it's not something that you, it, it's not ceremony. It's not, uh, spe- you know, but it is something that I thought, oh, this is, this is a good tradition to, to show everybody. And it's still practiced today. Like I said, I, I modeled this based on, you know, my dad sent me some video of him doing it and it happens, you know, in the late summer, um, which was also, I thought a good thing to show because I wanted to start the book in the summer in that part of the world because it's just so beautiful in the summer. There's, you know, three, four week period where just, you know, the sun is out very, very late till probably 10 at night. There's fireflies. There's just everything is so beautiful. I don't go back there in the winter. (laughs) I knew I wanted it to end (laughs) in the dead of winter when it's Again, I've lived in California too long to be able to handle a lot of snow. But that I thought was really good introduction to the world, to some tradition. But also I wanted it to be something that is still practiced now and still done now. And so, yeah, I thought that would be a fun thing to show. Food is one of my favorite like things to talk about both in world building and in culture and like culturally significant food is one of like my favorite like not anything I ever studied but something I always wanted to study being like oh yeah you know that's why olives are so important in Greek tradition and why it was <laughs> the gift that Athena gave in the naming of Athens like you know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Harvest and food prep is also you know it's sort of the the mundanity of daily life right where like you know of course course you have like the special tool you use the song you sing or the you know the the technique you use for doing it and technology one of my friends recently was like what do you call the motion when you swish the rice on her instagram story she's a a caterer and chef and there were you know dozens of responses from people all over the world of like rice-based and not rice-based cultures being like oh yes it's swish it's wash it's agitate it's swirl it's finger dance it's all kinds of things because it's you know it's something that we're all familiar with yeah oh absolutely and i think it's one of the best ways you can connect with someone you've never met before i don't think it's you know coincidence that a lot of introductions happen over lunch or dinner, you know, or that's the suggestion. And it's just a a good way to connect with people is eat with them, offer them some of your food. And, you know, they'll offer you some of theirs. And I just, you know, who doesn't love food? I love food. Who doesn't love food? And a thing that we also love on this podcast, obviously, is cocktails. Do you have a favorite cocktail? I love spicy margaritas yes Yes. join the spicy margarita squad so good (laughs) okay yes it's got jalapenos in it if it's got tahini on the rim i'm all in Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah. oh god so good i've done like a sumac um salt sugar combo for a rim recently which i i got i know i'm like super crossing like cultural streams here like the fruitiness of it i think goes really well um with with the spicy margarita vibe Mm mm-hmm Ooh, I'm going to have to look, try that. That sounds amazing. I recommend it. Yeah, I haven't really played around with sumac that much, Amanda. You're going to have to show me next time I see you. Brooke, thank you so much for being on the show. Can you tell people where they can find you on the internet and where they can pick up The Peacekeeper? Absolutely. So you can find me on Twitter at BL Blanchard. That's um, my Instagram handle is BL Blanchard underscore rights. I also have a website, blblanchard.com. And you can find The Peacekeeper anywhere books are sold. Please do pick up a copy if this looks interesting to you. It's out from 47 North and it's my work is published under B.L. Blanchard. And we're so excited and so glad that we got to talk to you about it. And listeners, remember, go pick up the book. And as always, remember, stay creepy. Stay cool. 
Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye.